She said, now, you need to give them a little more explanation about the time, I said, where we went through a difficulty, uh, just before we went through a difficulty. I don't know if you remember that. And she said, because it kind of like sounded like that's when you left the full-time ministry. And so most people, when they hear you used to be a minister, they think, well, he either slept with a secretary, <laughs> stole the money, or had a midlife crisis or something. None of those. <laughs> so I want to set you at rest about that. Um, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. If you're not, don't worry about it. But <laughs> hope it doesn't add any more questions to you. <laughs> but the other thing, just a couple of comments. Um, you're giving to missions. And I, I think that's so fantastic. And uh, from what you said, you do it in a very consistent, regular way. And I, I'd like to relate this little story to you. I don't want to be known for just telling stories, but, you know, th this is true. We were, we were living in Dallas in 1966 for about three months. We'd taken a semester at a Bible college in upstate New York, and we got a call to the mission field through the church we were attending at the time, just for a few months in Dallas, and it was uh, in the Philippines. So we were actually wanted to go to Indonesia, but... The opportunity presented itself in the Philippines, and Indonesia was going through some real turmoil at the time, and so you, it was very difficult to get in there as a missionary. So we said, okay, we'll go. Well, all our stuff, which comprised two suitcases or something like that, was upstate New York. So we had a Volkswagen, little Volkswagen bug car, and so, okay, we're going to the Philippines. So the first thing we had to do was drive to New York, to pick up our stuff. Well, when we got there, they asked us what we were going to do because we weren't going back to school. And we said, we're off to the Philippines. How are you going to get there? Well, we're going to drive to California and get on a plane and go. We had a one-way ticket by plane. So this minister, one of the teachers at the school, he said to me, he said, well, where are you going to stay while you drive to California? He said, I don't know. We're just going to drive. I mean, I was 22 years old, my wife was 20. What do we know? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And he said to me, well, let me arrange some places for you to stay and speak. So he did. He arranged three places. I still remember them. One was in Wheatfield, Indiana. The other was in Wichita Falls, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas, not Wichita Falls. And the other was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Well, we stayed three nights, and one night in each of those three places, we spoke to the church those nights, and for the next seven years, all those three churches supported us on the mission field and never missed a month. Now, we never saw them again. We never went back there. We used to write and communicate and so on. But I'll never forget that they were not big churches, uh, but they were faithfully exercising their responsibility and their ministry to help with us while we are over there. And uh, we've never forgotten that. So I encourage you to, you know, you're part of what goes on in the larger body of Christ. And though you're not there yourself, you might never have gone to these places, yet what you do enables this to happen. So thank you for doing that. It's a great ministry. Um, I don't know whether I should tell you this, but I will. So there was, it's Mother's Day, right? Shall I? Do I get my permission? Do I have permission? 
No. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and do it anyway, right? <laughs> so I was reading this the other day, and it was about husbands and wives, and the husband thought, thought to himself, he said, my wife has a great life. She just stays at home, doesn't have to get up and dress in the morning, go to work. You know, I have to go to work and deal with all these problems, etc., etc. So he was praying. He said, Lord, give me a day where I can be my wife. And, and please don't misread anything to this. The next day he woke up as his wife. And so all day he was taking care of kids with, you know, running noses and all the things you heard about this morning if you were in church in the first service. So at the end of the day, he thought, man, this has been a tough, tough day, and I don't know that I want to do this anymore. So he prayed. He said, Lord, please make me back to a man. And the Lord said, yes, I'll do that. And the the man said, thank you, Lord. But the Lord said, P.S., I've got to tell you something else. You'll have to wait nine months because last night you got pregnant. (laughs) So I hope this is not recorded. (laughs) I, I was talking to someone in between services and I said I should tell Chuck that. And he said, don't, he'll use it. And uh, which is probably, I thought that was pretty good. But one of the things he, Pastor Swindoll said this morning also when he was talking, he said, one of the roles of a wife in life is to be adaptable and be prepared to make adjustments. And, and I want to say this in honor of my own wife. When we got married, I was an accountant or trying to be. I graduated within a few weeks we left and went to Bible college up in upstate New York and then to the Philippines and Indonesia and so on. Well, uh, if I look back on our life, nothing that we ever thought was going to happen ever happened. And I'm sure that was true with her, although she came from a missionary family and understood these things. And in our life, and I I made reference to this at a wedding I was conducting a number of years ago, and I said, when we stood at the altar saying, I do, little did we know what our life was going to be like. And so I've been, or we've been, missionaries, pastors, director of a mission organization. I even ran for political office in New Zealand. And then I've been involved in business for the last 30 years. And we've lived in four different countries, you know, for not just a week, but, you know, months, learned a different language, uh, had children born in Indonesia, and things like this. And I am so grateful that I have a wife who is willing to follow me, if you like to put it that way, work with me all of those through all of those different experiences. So I give you honor today. Now, I don't often do that, so you have to really take that. That'll last about five years, you know. (laughs) In fact, one lady came up in our church and said to my wife, said, how do you live with him? (laughs) She did, because I'd I'd say all sorts of crazy things, but I'm much better now than I used to be, I think. (laughs) Now, one other thing, you know, because last week was your first week in this room, right? So I was doing, I don't know why I looked this up, but I first came to this church in 2004. 
how long? 13 years ago, right? And the day I came was a day when Mark Young, anyone remember Mark Young? He was the preacher. So I often do this. I said, I sent him an email. I said, we visited Stonebriar for the first time this past Sunday and certainly appreciated your sermon. Well thought out and informative. Thank you. That was it. So I got a response back from him that said this. Thank you for your encouragement. Sometimes first-time visitors are so disappointed when they learn that Chuck isn't speaking that they leave before the service starts. He said, thanks for staying. <laughs> and I thought, now there's a guy with a good, you know, <laughs> true. Never send me an email because I got them. Um, this 2004, if you please. <laughs> So thanks for coming back today, if you were here last week. Uh, that's always encouraging. Um, everyone has a mother, right? Except bankers. <laughs> Any bankers here? Not, not willing to admit it? <laughs> but that, that's a common joke we had. We were selling to banks for a number of years back in the 80s and 90s. And they had a conference called the National Automation and Operations Conference for the American Bankers Association. It was always on Mother's Day weekend. And the reason was because bankers don't have mothers. <laughs> now, don't go anywhere else with that, please. Um, okay, so having got all that out of the way, let's start. Is that all right? You know, you're much more relaxed than you were last week. <laughs> Not sleepy, I <laughs> The disciples... What, oh, hang on. One other thing I want to mention, that's this. This is about 1977. We, we traveled the world, world for a whole year with our two kids who were seven and nine at the time, preaching all over England, all over the U.S., and, and through Africa. That we were talking a lot about missions, which we were involved in at the time. And I can distinctly remember saying, uh, one of the things I used to say was, in the country of Nepal, there are barely 200 Christians. Barely 200 Christians in the whole country. And I read this article the other day about Nepal... And it said this, why Nepal has one of the world's fastest growing Christian populations. They are now up to, according to this, some 375,000 Christians. And you think, the reason I say that is because we, we need to understand and should understand in relation to what the Lord is doing worldwide, that we are on the winning side. I really believe that. And the growth of the church, particularly through Asia and Africa and South America, is just nothing short of outstanding. In Indonesia, where we were, approximately 20% of the population is now Christian. And Indonesia is the largest by population Muslim country in the world. And churches there are just growing like wildfire. Some of them are up to 50,000, 60,000 people in a church in Indonesia. 
And I say that to really encourage you as you believe the Lord and give to missions that this will return unto you because the Lord's word will never return unto him void. There will be a harvest. And when you look at the uh, China, for instance, no one really knows how many there are in the, in the sense of how many Christians there are there. But what I read most of the time is at least 10% and maybe more of China is Christian. 130 to 150 million Christians in China. And I can remember when we used to stand on the hills in Kowloon looking across to communist China and sort of said we have looked communism in the face and we didn't like what we saw, you know, just a sort of a... a and, and now you see what's happened. You know, it's a, we, we need to thank God for what he's doing around the world and be aware of what he's doing and never let ourselves get discouraged in spite of the onslaught that seems to come and is coming against the church. Amen. Amen. So I, I could talk a lot about missions, but I guess I shouldn't do that today. You know, what am I doing here? It talks in the Bible about the greatest people thought the great, or the, let's call it this way, the disciples thought the greatest defeat of their whole life was the death of Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Following him, leaving all, following him, and then see him dying on the cross. Not understanding completely, as we know from what the Bible tells us, that they kind of didn't believe that he would rise again, even though he told them. So, but on the other hand, if we look in the, in, with hindsight and understand history, that that defeat, so-called, was the greatest victory ever accomplished in the history of mankind. So what seems to be a defeat can turn into our greatest victory. And I think we need to understand that. Through his death came freedom for us and the approximately 2 billion people around the world, if you include all the various groups and denominations and so on, who name the name of Jesus. So resurrection and new life comes as a result of defeats that we go through. One person said there are triumphant defeats that rival victories. And I think that's an interesting thought. There are triumphant defeats that rival victories. I like to read political books. I've got a whole lot of them. I've got 160 books about Richard Nixon. You say, how do you get 160 books about Richard Nixon? They're still writing them, if you please. I've got one. It's got all the comics, comic strips about Nixon. It's a whole book. The most famous one is seven Nixons sitting at a table with a caption underneath that says, will the real Nixon please stand up? which is kind of interesting commentary, but we don't get into that. But Bush's campaign manager in 2004, Ken Melman, drew youthful lessons from the previous presidential contest. And you remember year 2000? 
Gore versus Bush and all those sorts of things. Let me tell you the best thing that ever happened to us, the recount in, in 2000. He said in strategery, you know, that's a good word, isn't it? Strategery interview. It steeled everybody. It put the fear of God in us. Let me tell you, uh, one of the things that I firmly believe in life is that success is more dangerous than near failure. Because when you fear failure, you're hungrier, you're tougher, you're smarter, you make more strategic decisions, and you never take a moment for granted. We never take a moment for granted. Our greatest glory consists not in never falling, but in rising again every time we fall. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a few times in life where it was kind of tough. When I ran for political office, it was a six or seven month effort, and uh, I thought I was going to win. Every politician, I think, thinks they're going to win because they don't take time to think they're going to lose because then you would stop knocking on doors, right? But I, 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 we, we ran in an area that had 35,000 people, about 10,000 homes. That was the parliamentary division in New Zealand. And I made a statement that I would knock on everyone's door before the election, 10,000 of them. So... After a few days, I hoped that people were not home. <laughs> Knock on their door, leave a card, and run to the next place. Uh, which, you know, but fortunately they called what, you know, you've seen in England just recently, an early election, so it didn't go the full term. So we were spared from doing that, but I still kept knocking on doors, uh, you know, every day. A hundred, I had to do a hundred a day. And that's why I hoped they were, they were out. But... Um, what I was saying was that we, we were so enamored with what we were doing and so caught up with it and so into it that you never thought about defeat. But the night of the election, not only the party we were with, we were with the, uh, well, you'd call it the Republican Party over here, although it's not called that there, it's called the National Party. And... Uh, the, the Prime Minister had been elected three times in a row, so he'd won three elections in a row, and he now was trying to get a fifth, fourth term, no term limitations. So uh, he not only lost big time, but we lost, and almost everyone else in the party lost. It was one of those change swing elections. So you wake up the next morning and you think, what am I going to do? Because you hadn't thought about it. But it was, a, it was a loss, and I thought to myself, well, our family got together and we said, well, let's go back to the USA, because we had left here a year, or just under a year beforehand, to go and do this. We've been living in Dallas for three years, let's go and do this, midlife crisis, whatever it was, I don't know, <laughs> but we did it, and we went through that whole campaign, I Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great experience. And uh, we came back here, and some folks said to me that both saw us off when we left to go back to New Zealand and welcomed us when we came back. They said, you're the only people we've ever known who've gone on vacation and taken all your furniture with you. Because <laughs> we did. We shipped everything down there with the viewpoint disdain, and we brought it all back again. Uh, and, and, and then I said, what are we going to do? Well, I had... 
I'd resigned from my positions in the mission organization I was running, and so we thought, I don't know what we're going to do. Fortunately, a friend of mine said, would you like to come and work for us? And I said, what would I do? Well, he'd just started a company. There was five technology guys in there, and he wanted a salesperson. So he said to me, would you like to be our first salesperson? And I said, I have no idea about selling. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've never been a salesperson. And he looked at me and he said, well, you actually have. You've just got to change your product. <laughs> Going from the church world to the business world. Now, it was a technology company and I had no idea. I used an abacus when I was in Indonesia. <laughs> a true story. <laughs> I got pretty good at it. Uh, but... Uh, so we actually went to work for him, and life went on from there. Now, we all face challenges in life that look like they're tough. There's no way through. There's no way out. There's no future for us. But if you ever saw the movie Seabiscuit, you know, you don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up a little. And if I was to ask you each individually, you would be able to identify points in your life where you were banged up. I don't know what sort of word that is. Is that English or American or what? Now, if we go to Exodus chapter 5, just for a few moments here, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now, do you think that took a little courage from Moses? <laughs> you know, to go into Pharaoh, when the children of Israel had been in captivity for 400 years, and say, Okay, we're out of here. How do you like it? Of course, just go. No. It took a, a, a lot of courage. He was God's deliverer for the nation of Israel. He was directed by God to do it. He was strong in faith and courage to go in and do it, but he wasn't always that courageous. Because it says afterward, in chapter 5, verse 1, now if we go back to chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus, we see the interaction that Moses had with God as God was trying to lead him down into the nation of uh, the land of Egypt to be the deliverer of God's people after that 400 years of bondage. The first one is in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, where God, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go and do this? Do you ever have that response when you're asked to do something? Who am I? What qualifications do I have? Have I done this before? All sorts of questions arise in our mind. And this is Moses' response. Who am I that I should be the one that should go and do this? And yet we need to realize that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So when God calls you, he doesn't like a response that says, who am I to go and do it? The second thing is in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, they will not believe me. This is Moses talking to God. They will not believe me. Um, you think about this. He had 
No sense of mission. He was afraid of rejection. He was afraid of doing something that's unusual. And he had no confidence in what God had told him to do. So he said, do not believe me. I'm very doubtful about my ability or God's ability in me to accomplish a task that he gives me to do. The third one is in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, Oh God, I can't speak. He said, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. In the original King James, which is the one that Paul used, um, it says, neither heretofore nor since. And I thought, anyone who's slow of speech can't say heretofore. <laughs> so he knew it was kind of a, an excuse, right? But he said, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I can't do this. I can't communicate. You know, one of the things that we can understand is that when we've been following the Lord and we've learned the things that we've learned over time, you have the ability to speak to someone. You do. It's there in you and you just have to let it come out. I, my wife was down at our lake house this week for Thursday, Friday and Saturday with six of her lady friends and I have to go down as the manservant. <laughs> Clean up, make sure it's all stick and stand, there's no flying there, there's nothing. And I go and stay at uh, one of our neighbor's places down at our lake house. So I'm sitting there on Friday night and we have had dinner, we're just about to finish dinner, and he looks at me and he says, now, as a man of the cloth, that's the term he used. As a man of the cloth, I want to ask you a question. And he said that in 2001, his 19-year-old son committed suicide. And he put it this way. He said, you know, the old question is, why would God allow that to happen to my wife? Didn't say himself. And he's a colonel in the military, a retired colonel in the military. And he said, I want you to explain this to me. Well, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And we got into a conversation about it. I tried not to. He said, I've always been a person of faith, but I just don't understand this. It's the old story, why do bad things happen to good people, etc., etc." Well, we had a half an hour, three-quarter an hour discussion uh, about it. The next morning, his wife sent me a little email, and among some other things in it, it said, faith is not a belief that everything turns out okay. Faith is a belief that we're okay no matter how things turn out, which I thought was pretty powerful because we can't, there's a lot of things we can't control. But here I was thrust into a situation where, what am I going to say? And I could say, well, call Stan. <laughs> or refer it to someone else. Now, he knew some of my background, so he thought he had some confidence in, in that. His wife's sitting there, and she's saying to me, kind of let him have it sort of thing, you know, because he's, she's got through it in the sense of 
got past it, and he still struggles with the whole, whole issue. I remember a number of years ago, I was asked to take a funeral of a five-year-old, for a five-year-old boy who'd been killed in an elevator accident in his own home. The person who's, I'd conducted the wedding for this couple, he was overseas when it happened, he had to fly back, and I won't go into all the other detail about it, but I said, yes, I'll do it, and then I thought afterwards, what have I done? Because <coughs> I thought, what am I ever going to say that can be helpful? But now I couldn't say no anymore, and I sent out a prayer request to some of our friends said, please, please pray for me. I feel so, so inadequate in this situation. And it just seemed the Lord over a day or so just seemed to give me the words to say and the things to talk about. It was a tough, one of the toughest things I've ever done because there was other things going on in the family that made it even worse than it normally is. But I, I'll say this, God can give you the ability to say and do the right thing when you need to. That's what he's all about. The last thing he said, God, he says, God, send someone else. Chapter 4, verse 13. And you know, when he said this, God got kind of angry. <laughs> he said, I, I'm tired of you. I'll give you someone who can speak for you. Aaron, and so it went on. So we have this interaction going on, and Moses, called to be deliverer, is now making all the excuses in the world to not do it, including saying, God, you're wrong. Don't send me. Send someone else. No wonder God gets angry occasionally, right? He's saying to us, look, you know, I'm not asking to send someone else. I'm asking to send you. Now, so he starts on the journey down to Egypt. And in chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 24 to 26, it says, God met him and sought to kill him. Now, I'm not a theologian in that sense, but when you read that, you think, that's kind of strong, right? And then what happens in the next couple of verses you see, Moses' wife takes a sharp stone and four circumcises their son, takes the foreskin and throws it down at his feet and says, you're a bloody husband to me. Now, that doesn't express frustration. What does? And if you're the son, you're not too happy with that. <laughs> I'm sure of that. But after that point... He goes on his journey down to Egypt. Now, I just digress a little bit here and say, what caused this enormous frustration in his wife? This is the wife of Moses. Well, first of all, lack of communication. He doesn't tell me anything. How many times have I heard that in talking to married couples? Now, none of you have that problem because you've been married a long time. <laughs> sometimes my wife says to me she says well you know what I mean and you know what I say well don't bother talking then <laughs> now that really 
<laughs> that really gets her going, right? But lack of communication. He doesn't tell anything. The second thing is lack of understanding. He doesn't understand me. Isn't that a classic? Third thing is lack of stability. Double-minded. One way one day and one day the next. And the next day another way. And then lack of proper response. Men, on Mother's Day, we could call it Wives' Day as well, he, he never does anything about it. We've got a pool sweep in our house that's been semi-broken for probably a year. It gets caught up all the time. And then the wheels keep going and they're making little ruts in the mortar. And my wife says to me, when are you going to get that fixed? And I said, tomorrow. <laughs> and it's still doing that. But I did call someone, they told me what to do, and I said, that's too expensive. No, I didn't say that. I almost said that. But lack of proper response. If we don't want people to be frustrated with us, we've got to understand them, we've got to communicate with them, we've got to be very stable in our lives. Very stable. Have some sense of stability, and we've got to have a proper response to people. Well, anyway, that's beside the way there. So later on, of course, Moses gets down there. Now, here's the background of Moses as well as what we've just talked about. He spent seven, 40 years living in the wilderness. He was married to his father-in-law's daughter. <laughs> Get that? <laughs> he, he lived in his father-in-law's house. He took care of his father-in-law's sheep. No wonder he said, who am I? <laughs> right? I, I can remember once. My wife's father was a fairly well-known preacher in New Zealand. And we went back on furlough one time. We're preaching in various churches. And one time there was an ad in the paper. It said, guest speaker, missionary. It said, Dal Walker's son-in-law. <laughs> I mean, I was not very happy. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I, I must have been old by this, at least 26 or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, but you understand what happened here is that Moses, in all this time, he was not getting really well prepared for what the Lord had called him to do. So no wonder he had this interaction with God about all these excuses. Not only that, if you recall the first time he went out there fleeing from Egypt, he came across these seven beautiful ladies. We don't know if they're beautiful, but they were ladies. And so they were. And he helped them draw water from the well and chase the shepherds away that were trying to take over. And then the seven sisters went back to their father and left Moses out there by the well. You know what the father said? He said, what happened? They said, well, someone came to help us. And the father said, well, tell me about him. And then he said, well, why have you left him out there? If you had seven daughters, unmarried, and a guy shows up, <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> right? <laughs> In fact, I call it the ultimate reality show where not even one guy gets picked. So this is the background that he had. But it came to the point where finally he goes in there. Now, no matter our experiences in life, no matter how difficult they've been, how hard they are, and all the things that we go through, we need to understand this, that we have a high priest, Jesus, 
who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We're not alone in the journey of life that we go through. And I always go back to this verse. When Jesus was towards the end of his ministry, the Bible says that many of the disciples started to leave him and draw back from him. And Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Will you also go away? Now, if you don't think that's a sense of rejection, I've been doing all this stuff, I've come for this mission, and now everyone's leaving me, even to the point where he asked his disciples, will you also leave? And that's when you understand that Jesus as a man experienced all the temptations that we have, and yet he was without sin. But he understands. He really does understand. Yes, we're human. Yes, we do make mistakes. Yes, we fail. But through all these things, we can move forward to a new stage of development and growth. Now, how should we react to reversals in life? And I'll just move on here. I think this. Number one, what's, what's the reaction we have? We can quit and give up. But then we've really got a problem, right? Secondly, we can withdraw into ourselves and isolate ourselves, trying to protect and defend ourselves. Thirdly, we could have a breakdown. And we can internalize it and not come to grips with it. We can hold an anger. We can develop bitterness and so on. The fourth thing we can do is get up, Start again, acknowledge to God what's happened, ask him for help, and move forward. One of the principles I learned a number of years ago, well, probably 20, 30 years ago, was at some point in our life, we've got to take off the rear vision mirror of our past and look forward to a different day tomorrow. Who for the joy that was set before him, it says of Jesus, despised the shame because he knew what the reward was for him. There was a new day for him, an eternal day, and he was able to go through it because of that. We live in a success-orientated world. Preachers get together. How many do you have in your church? Isn't that true? I, I've seen that a hundred times. Well, I have 50, but... Last week it was 45, so we're growing, 10% growth. <laughs> and we, we talk like this. We live in that world. We're afraid sometimes to even express to our friends the struggles that we go through. And yet, if we're willing to express things to our friends about what we go through, it opens them up to us so that we can be a help and a ministry to them. I mentioned last week about this friend of ours who was married for 50 years. His wife passed away. He nursed her for the last year of her life. He got married again about four years later to a lady who was diagnosed with stage four cancer within a year. But you know what he said to me? He's a member of the board of directors, 
very accomplished accountant, he said when he started to tell his business associates and relate to them the struggles that he had gone through, all of a sudden they were saying, tell me more, and how did you get through that? In other words, how vulnerable are we willing to be in our relationships with other people? As you guys say, how are you today? Oh, I'm just fine. <laughs> how are you really? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> you know, but we don't like to do that. But aren't you thankful that in the world of the church and, and the way we have this fellowship and association, that we have true friends that we can talk to and they won't condemn us, they won't put us down, they won't throw us away, they won't say you're no good, but they accept with grace who we are and we encourage each other and so much the more, the Bible says, as we see the day approaching. It hurts to fail. It hurts to have things happen in our life which we don't plan for them to be. But it can help us if we handle it right. A few things. First and foremost, when things happen to you, resist the temptation to blame other people. Secondly, thank God for it. You know, God's bigger than all of us, right? And if he doesn't want us to have something, ha if something shouldn't happen, it's not going to happen. We have to understand that he has a purpose. It can give us new information. I always believe this. We need to keep learning in life. Right? No matter how accomplished how much we've done, there's always something more to learn. And when we come up against obstacles, it helps us to learn. And it can push you in a new direction. We can go in a different direction sometimes. It doesn't mean the previous one was wrong, but we have reactions. How do we react? Are we an ostrich? Bury our head in the sand? Or are we a lion? I'm going to roar at people when everything goes wrong. Or we can be like a dove, easily entreated and willing and able to learn something new. So, in conclusion, though we fail, he upholds us with his hand. Forty years later, Moses fulfilled his destiny. The steps of good men and women are ordered by the Lord. And just in conclusion, I've got this thing that I wear when I ride bicycles. It's called a road ID. You strap it around here and if you have a crash and you can't talk, they've got someone to call. Right? So the first thing is it's got, it's, it's got my name and when I was born. Second, it's got Valme, wife. And it's got Deanna, daughter. And then Valmy again is a wife. So she's my wife twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's because of cell phone and home phone, right? <laughs> and then it's got a, the last thing on it is you have a little space to put something that you kind of like your motto. And here I've got, if you fall, get up again. And that's kind of one of the mottos of my life. If you fall, a good man, when he falls, gets up again. But 
the and let me just quote this correctly here if I may um, Proverbs 24 and verse 16 says this for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again but the wicked stumble when calamity comes and us who trust the Lord no matter what happens to us we can rise again because we are resurrected with him we're buried with him in death we're resurrected with him and we have the God-given ability to stand up again and not be knocked down by the adversities of life The Bible is full of stories of people, right? And yet when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, it seems like it's all the good things written there. All the heroes of the faith. It doesn't say Abraham said his wife was his sister. It doesn't say that Isaac did exactly the same thing as the father. It doesn't talk about David's adultery and murder. It doesn't talk about Sarah, who organized a mistress for her husband. It doesn't talk about Peter, who denied the Lord like that. And it doesn't talk about Paul, who killed Christians. It talks about them as heroes of faith. Not because they were perfect, but because they knew that God was working with them to perfect them and keep them going forward. I call those things the National Enquirer version of the Bible because it's true. And isn't it great that it is true because if we were reading a book about people who were always perfect, there would be no hope for us. So when you fall, rise again. That's what the Lord wants us to do in every aspect of our life. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us here today. We thank you that you're always teaching us, instructing us, helping us to learn, helping us to grow, helping us to be more like you. Help us, I pray, Lord, that even in the latter years of our life, you have a mission for us, you have a cause for us, you have a ministry for us, you have something for us to do. And we pray that we will do it to your glory and not stand back from your call on our lives, no matter what it is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.